0: This is the In Focus Podcast from the Hindu. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the In Focus Podcast. I'm your host, Dee (laughs) Sampath. About 60 people have been killed, more than 230 injured and thousands have been displaced following inter-ethnic clashes in Manipur. According to the state government, around 1700 houses including religious places were burnt during the violence. These clashes followed months of mounting tension over successive measures by the Manipur government that the state's tribal groups believed to be against their interests. The immediate trigger for the conflict seemed to be an order of the Manipur High Court directing the state government to submit its recommendation, the recommendation to include the state's majority Meitei community in the scheduled tribes list, to the Union Tribal Affairs Ministry by May 29th. And on May 3rd last week, as the All Tribal Students Union or ATSU organized quote unquote a solidarity march to protest against this move, violence broke out and spread to different parts of the state. So, what are the issues behind the communal clashes rocking the state? What are the moves by the state government that have proved controversial among different sections of the population in the state? And what possible steps could lead to the restoration of peace in this region? We try and unpack the reasons behind the ongoing unrest in Manipur in this episode of the InFocus podcast and we are joined by Patricia Mukim, the editor of Sri Times. Ms. Mukim, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi, good evening. Uh,
0: Ms. Mukim, to start with, uh, can you tell us what exactly led to the violence that broke out last week? There have been some reports saying it's been building up. And uh, so what do you think, what what in your assessment led to this kind of large scale violence?
1: See, there's always been a palpable tension between the valley and the hills. Uh... There is this perception by the hill tribes that everything happens only in Imphal Valley, which is just ten percent of the land area of Manipur. Ninety percent are hills, and yet the irony is that about sixty-seven percent of the population live in the valley. So there's a lot of pressure on land, and this, you know, this actually uh, is a it's a resentment. That's not expressed maybe in other times, but when things culminate, you know, when when things culminate, then everything comes out. So the the trigger for this is, of course, the, the surveying of uh, the the forests, which are actually in in uh, in tribal states. All forests are part of the indigenous people's homes. Uh, they are considered the forest is considered their home and the state has no jurisdiction over those forests. But in February this year, uh, the Chief Minister Biran Singh ordered that these forest lands should be surveyed and brought under the purview of reserve forest. And uh, so this is one intrusion of the state into tribal dominated areas. And naturally it's a threat, you know, because uh, uh, the tribals actually use the resources from the forest. And it's also a fact that uh, a lot of this forest land is also used for growing poppy for poppy cultivation. In fact, the Biran Singh government had substantially reduced the area and the poppy cultivation from 6,700 acres to only about 1,100 acres. So there's been this sustained move to also curtail the cultivation of poppy and to bring those areas perhaps under the cultivation of marijuana, ganja. Because Biran Singh in 2019 pushed a bill wanting to legalize marijuana uh, because he said it can be used for medicinal and industrial purposes. So all of these actually have built up. And of course the trigger was that, uh, that April 19 judgment of the uh, Manipur High Court directing the state government to take action to get the process going, to uh, get the, the Maites, who are essentially Hindus, to be recognized as scheduled tribes. That was something that uh, really uh, sort of uh, was the nail in the coffin, and uh, violence had to break out. Then there was this uh, solidarity march on May 3rd. It, it happened in churachandpur but some miscreants actually lighted, you know, they lighted up a particular gate, which was erected in memorial of the Anglo-Kuki War. It, it's, a, it's a symbol of a pride for the Kuki people that, was, that, was, uh, that went up in flames. And I think that just triggered the worst in people. Then they started getting violent. Then they started lighting up other spaces belonging to the Maydays and so on and so forth and then the violence uh, escalated in the valley and there we find that uh, police stations you know where sort of uh, the the people in the valley looted arms and ammunition from at least 35 police stations and they brandished these arms so one wants to ask where is the law and order machinery they even went to a particular armory and looted arms from there so it looks like a complete collapse of the law and order, and uh, there's also this sense that um, there's an intelligence failure there because the you know temperature was was boiling. I mean, uh, things were on the boil, and uh, to to allow a procession to be held where about sixty thousand people took part was to be asking for trouble. In any other state, any other situation, uh, you know, the government would uh, would apply section 144 in, in on the plea that uh, they want to keep the law and order under control. But in this case, everything seems to have gone out of control. So yesterday when Chief Minister Biran Singh said that uh, those responsible for all this violence will be held accountable, the question to him is, who should be held accountable? Is it not the state government? Was it not the failure of the state government? So these are the questions that are coming
0: up. Uh, right, Mishwikam, you, you have given a very detailed outline of how uh, sort of Manipur has reached the current uh, situation that it has. And you made a very important point about the collapse of law and order and who's to be held responsible for it. And now we, uh, we are... Uh, I mean, it's not very clear how the collapse of law and order happened, but from what we have seen in the media reports, spokespersons and representatives of the tribal uh, populations who have been at the receiving end in some areas, just as the MPs are being at the receiving end in other areas, they have said that the police force is dominated by the valley people, and it they sort of that they are alleging some kind of complicity on the part of the police forces in allowing the collapse of law and order. Like, how can, it, how can people just go and uh, loot armories? How can they just take weapons from police stations? So do you think there is any merit in these allegations or yes, is it just yes. uh, uh, speculative kind of uh, talk?
1: No, well, there is. We cannot deny that there is complicity of the state forces. And we see this happening in state after state. You know, uh, you see the law and order machinery being used by the state and we are not able to do anything about it so naturally the people valley uh, the, the the hill people were crying out for central intervention you know they they actually uh, made all kinds of appeals asking even for president's rule and then the center responded with article 355 and uh, brought in the 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 former nia chief to look after the the situation, to bring the situation under control, then you had the army, then you had the, the the central paramilitary forces. But by then, so much had happened. There were so many homes that have been burned and looted. And it almost appears, when you talk to people now, it almost appears as if everything was prepared. You know, it was like a pogrom. It was already people had already identified which homes to light up which uh, churches to desecrate and so on it's not as if it's on the spur of the moment it was nothing like that it looked like a very preconceived kind of action so naturally now there is so much of uh, dissension so much of suspicion between the hill and the valley that's only grown, it's only exacerbated with this present uh, uh, sort of anarchy. You can call
0: it right. I mean, that's a really a uh, disturbing uh, sort of a, a point you've raised here. mukim about uh, people knowing uh, which houses to burn. Uh, there are characteristics of a pogrom in this context. I mean, we. we I mean, you might you might be familiar with uh, with with the author Paul Brass. Uh, what is he, how he sort of theorized communal rights and so on. And he talks about how uh, in a pogrom kind of a situation the pattern of violence is such that mixed neighbourhoods are targeted so that they become homogenous. In this case, was there a pattern where in the valley areas uh, the tribal uh, houses were targeted so that they they move out or they get displaced? And in the hill, hill areas, uh, the houses and properties of the valley people were targeted so that the mixed neighbourhoods, you know, are sort of eliminated and you have uh, this ghettoization between two different sections of the population. Was there a pattern of that kind? Yes,
1: there was a pattern. Uh, We have friends from the hills and the valleys, no? So, uh, you know, some of them had to just run for their lives and escape. And then uh, they also said that after their homes were burnt, people went and ransacked and took away whatever they could. And these were well-established families who have been doing their businesses in the valley for a long time. They're cookie families. Uh, of course, you have meites uh, in uh, in Moray district. You have some in Churachanpur. Uh, they also were in a panic. Uh, of course, there are also very rare instances of people helping out one another. We can't rule out that, but that's too few and far between largely it became uh, it became anarchic and because imphal is also the seat of education you know you have three medical colleges you have a central agricultural university you have a sports institution and you must have seen how you know panicked people were we we had to send uh, rescue missions from shillong to bring back the students here from meghalaya Guwahati, the whole of India, in fact. So, I mean, how do we come to such a situation? The state government has to, it has to respond to this. It has to be held accountable. There's no other way. I think in, in any other circumstance, Manipur has gone through this many times, her president's rule. If you brought in three, Article 355, which is an emergency uh, act, then uh, the next step would be to bring law and order, to bring things under control that you have also president's rule. You have 356. But whether that will happen is anybody's guess because Manipur is a BJP ruled state and uh, the BJP is ruling the center. So they wouldn't want to upset their apple pie, especially not now when they're heading for the
0: 2024 elections. Right. I mean, there is also the elections later this year. Before 2024 election, uh, the assembly elections in Manipur and uh, and these uh, communal incidents, this polarization that is happening uh, in the same year as the year when the elections are due, uh, that is also a very uh, disturbing uh, kind of a, uh, a thing to note here. Now, moving on, moving, taking a step back from, uh, from the actual uh, conflict that is going on uh, between those two sections of the population in the state, uh, one of the... Uh, uh, articles of the Constitution, which has been brought up in this context, uh, uh, especially by uh, by by the tribal population, is Article 371C, and they have they have sort of uh, alleged that the state government has been violating it repeatedly through various laws, policy changes, interventions in the hill areas, and so on. Can you talk a little bit about what does this Article 371C say, and has there been any such violation as alleged? Uh, by certain groups of uh, populations in the state,
1: uh, you see, this Article Three Seventy One C empowers the President of India to create what they call the Hill Areas Council, and that and the Hill Areas Councils will be the 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 whole formula is that the elected MLAs from the hills who are 40 in number, they will be also members of this hill area council and they will, uh, you know, make a framework of governance and make a budget and ensure that development also goes to the hills. This was uh, enacted in 1971. In 1972, Manipur became a full-fledged state. Before that, it was a union territory. and. Uh, normally all the hill tribes of the northeast are governed by the sixth schedule of the constitution but uh, Manipur didn't get the sixth schedule if they had the sixth schedule they would be governed by the constitution there's a constitutional mandate there which is not here in the in article 371c in fact uh, Manipur is governed by uh, by some provisions of the fifth schedule of the constitution, not the sixth schedule. The sixth schedule is much more powerful. For instance, you have in Meghalaya, the the district councils. These district councils get direct funding and uh, they are autonomous bodies. They govern the areas within their ambit, which is uh, all the tribal dominated areas. They're custodians of the forests of the rivers of land and uh, the traditional institutions work under them you know because these tradi- uh, traditional institutions have uh, they they have been there much before the indian constitution so it is in order to conserve these traditional institutions that uh, the, the that the sixth schedule was enacted now i cannot understand why the sixth schedule was not Uh, enacted for Manipur because you have such a huge area under the hills, under the hill tribes. So this is also one, uh, you know, one cause of anger, resentment, frustration of of the tribes because they see this as a sort of a state aggression into their territories uh, because this uh, 371C really is not very empowering. It does not uh, lay out the terms under which uh, the hills will be governed. They don't have a budget. They're not allowed to make a budget. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a... Uh, it's just a, a sort of a symbolic thing for the tribes. It's not really empowering them. And they had boycotted elections to the councils for 10 years. Then uh, they, later they were told that no no it uh, they will be much more empowered, they should participate in the elections. So they did participate, I think in 2010 with the hope that you know there will be the, the, the those councils will get more powers. but then they saw that it was the same old thing. It was the same old thing because every successive uh, chief minister, has been from among the Meitei community. The only tribal chief minister was Vishang uh, A long time ago, he was a congressman. After that, uh, you had uh, another congressman, but he, he is a Meitei. Then you have Biren Singh, who was also a Meitei. It's not nice to call out the names of communities here, but this is a reality that afflicts the, you know, the, the politics of the region. And sometimes you find that uh, politicians just prefer to allow the pot to simmer. They don't want to resolve anything because they make political capital out of these problems. Right. In fact, uh, Biren Singh had this scheme of of reaching out to the tribes. And and, uh, at some point, the Maites were unhappy with that, you know. And they say that now what he's doing now is uh, to try and get the Maites back in his good books.
0: Right, Ms. Mukum, you made two very important points uh, just now. On the one hand, you said that the tribal population, the hill people of Manipur, are not as empowered as the ones in, say, in Meghalaya, right, where they have their own budget and so on. So their uh, their recognition of their rights is more symbolic and not uh, real, not substantive. Uh, number one, and number two, you also said that because of this lack of real empowerment, uh, there have you, I mean th- th- there is a case to argue that the state has that there has been state aggression into their land and resources which would not be possible in a state like Meghalaya. Now, speaking of the state aggression, quote-unquote, uh, into their, their lands and territories, uh, one of the points which has come up repeatedly in, in debates on this issue is that the state government has recently declared different parts of the hill uh, areas as reserved forest, protected forest, wildlife sanctuary and wetlands so in doing so did the government follow established procedures as applicable to these regions
1: no no that is the the grouse that is the grouse of the tribes that there was no uh, consultation with the hill areas committees nor was there any consultation with the people of the area it was done very aggressively it was
0: was consultation legally or constitutionally required
1: of course of course but... It may not be required constitutionally because you see, here again there is an anomaly. If the Hill areas committee were constituted as they should have been, if they were empowered as they should have been, and which is what one questioned, you know why are the Hill area MLAs who are 40 in number, why didn't they protest? Why didn't they make this an election issue? Why do all these things not surface during the elections? So, uh, see the tribals are by nature, we don't take arbitrary decisions. You have, especially among the cookies, you have the chieftains. The chieftains actually are the real owners of land. And without insulting the chieftains, if you do something, it's an insult to the whole tribal community.
0: Right, right. So uh, on, on this same uh, aspect, so are you saying that the hill area committees feel that they have been completely left out of the decision making process when the state initiated you know this whole uh, process of declaring a particular area as reserve forest and initiating eviction measures like uh, when a lot of people evicted forcibly from their land where they may have been staying uh, living and using those land for uh, livelihoods for generations maybe
1: See it's like this uh, there is some truth that uh, people from across the border, from Myanmar, cookies from across the border, had been coming especially after the junta took over the uh, rule of Myanmar because they were persecuted there. So they came and they are of the same stock, the same ethnic stock, you know. Uh, just as uh, there are refugees in Mizoram and those refugees are actually kept in Mm -hmm. proper camps and uh, looked after very well by the Mizoram government. In Manipur, such is not the case. Uh, The the case is that these these people, of course, they were the the kith and kin of the Kukis and naturally the Kukis sheltered them, but uh, for the Manipur government, or a Meitei led government, it became a point of contention because uh, they feel that uh, the, 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 the Kuki population has grown exponentially. And perhaps uh, there is a, you know, a fight for resources as well. And uh, that's why the, uh, the, the Biren Singh government came up with a stricter measure of implementing the inner line permit. Recently, he said that there will be a face recognition technique so that the ILP will become stricter, so that people who do not have the right credentials cannot enter Manipur. So that and then he also spoke about the National Register of Citizens. I think all this you know, added to the turmoil among the cookies. On the one hand, they needed to protect their kith and kin, because we know how the borders were drawn by the colonialists without looking at which community is where. They just drew those lines, and then there are large sections of Nagas in Myanmar. Similarly, there are large sections of Kukis in Myanmar, and whenever there's trouble, they tend to come to this side of the border, to the Indian side of the border. in a sense, maybe that is a cause of concern, but that could have been handled more adroitly, more astutely, with more diplomacy than just barging into those territories and demolishing villages.
0: Right. You the uh, you're saying it could have been handled better and more adroitly. In this context, I was just curious, how were their local uh, media channels uh, covering these issues? Because there have been some reports that they have been fanning hate against certain sections by branding them, even the local, as so-called Myanmaris and immigrants and so on. Has the local media been a part of the solution here or has the coverage been polarizing, uh, like some of the other channels we know at the national level?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yes, there was was this uh, channel that even said that this is a uh, Christian-instigated riot, you know. Which is so wrong? I mean, you don't use religion that way. But anyway, uh, coming to the point, let me tell you one thing. Amongst the tribes of the northeast, it is very difficult to cover a communal conflict and to be completely objective. It's very difficult. You know, you 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 stand to you you are at danger of uh, being uh, ostracized by your community if you say that your community was the troublemaker or that your community did this and the other community did that. So if it's a kooky reporter from the hills, it's he will just go hammer and tongs at the Meitei. The Meitei reporter in the valley will go hammer and tongs at the at the hill tribes. So, it's very hard to be objective, but one expects objectivity from so-called national media because they have nothing to lose, you know, they are neither cookie nor mates. And they, they should be, actually should be able to report from the scene of action to give us the correct picture. But we didn't see that happening too much.
0: Right. I mean, we didn't see too much of objectivity uh, in the reportage of the rising tensions here. We're running out of time, Ms. Mukim. So, two quick questions I wanted you to come in. One, of course, is the immediate uh, trigger for, for, the, for the clashes you've seen, which is the Manipur High Court order regarding uh, recommending scheduled tribe status to the majority valley population of Metis. Can you talk a little bit about uh-huh. the history behind this demand for SC, SC status for them and what could be the implication of uh, Metis getting scheduled tribe status?
1: There will be huge uh, ramifications if the Maites are granted scheduled tribe status. And I suspect that uh, one of the reasons, prime reasons, is because they want to buy land in the hills. As of today, they can't do that because they're considered uh, they uh, non-tribals, you know, Hindus. So if the Maites had considered themselves Hindus, and uh, belonging, and they, they identify themselves as Hindus belonging to the majority community. I do not understand why at this point of time they need this tribal status because they also have cornered all the resources. You no, know, you look at government employment, you look at employment in those institutions located in the valley, they're largely, uh, all these institutions are largely uh, employing Maitis then also because they are a more progressive community, having had more access to education, you find them all across the country, if not the world. Uh, but today I was speaking to a gentleman who's a, a Meite doctor, and he's saying that there's, lots, there's a lot of pressure on land in the valley because The highway that will be connecting the east-west passage that will be connecting Manipur to Southeast Asia is also passing through the valley. Then large chunks of the valley land are also allocated for agriculture, for rice growing. So really there's a lot of pressure on land and also because people from the hills are allowed to buy land in the valley. Whereas people from the valley are not allowed to buy land in the hills. So this is a real problem, but it could be resolved more sort of uh, I don't know, by a, by a give and take, by consultation, by being transparent, by, you know, by I think consultation is what matters for tribals. They need to be to be part of the of the of the grand table that takes decisions. So I I feel that it could have been handled better without dragging politics into it.
0: Right. In this, in the context of this Manipur High Court uh, judgment, Ms. Mukim, even uh, earlier this week on Monday, in fact, uh, Chief Justice of India, uh, D.Y. Chandrasuth, uh, wondered actually orally why a 23-year-old constitution bench judgment, which clearly held that no court or state has power to quote-unquote add, subtract or modify the scheduled tribes list was not, quote unquote, shown to the Manipur High Court in the first place. I mean, uh, you were just speaking about handling this better. I mean, in this context, how do you characterize the government's approach uh, to this entire uh, crisis of rising tensions between the valley and the hill people? And you know, I mean, why wasn't this shown to the Manipur High Court? I mean, the court clearly did not have the power to recommend make such a recommendation. How did that happen and what can we expect uh, in the coming days and weeks?
1: So you have the Advocate General who should be, should have been speaking for the government. See, again here, you know, it's politics because I'm sure this person who represented the government of Manipur uh, on on a petition filed by an individual, it was a PIL, they could have shown this, but they won't do it because probably the Advocate General is also a Meite and if he had shown that, it would be bad for him. You know, he could even be lynched. So, uh, I think politics has trumped everything else in this case, even the even judicial wisdom.
0: Right. And now I don't
1: know how it's going to look uh, for the judiciary in Manipur.
0: Right. It has lost face. Right. I mean, politics has sort of interfered with due procedure. If I may put it that way. So, concluding words, the concluding remarks, Ms. Mukim, on how have things returned to normal yet, as the central government has been claiming? uh, I mean, is there any any plan in place to sort of address uh, the trauma of the displaced uh, people, people displaced by this violence, and so on? Like, is there uh, any chances of things going back to normal soon?
1: we are dealing with human emotions. You You don't switch on and switch off human emotions. It will take a long time for normalcy to return. And then people have all left their stations. They've all gone back to different parts of the country. It will also take a lot to build confidence in them that similar actions will not happen in the future, that a similar uh, situation will not uh, break up again or break out again so it's it's a difficult situation and okay the the state government has to give its account to whoever you know the the supreme court is also holding it accountable to bring uh, the situation into normalcy but how do you do that you'll have to uh, for the as far as the state police are concerned i think they have lost face and they you cannot trust them to bring normalcy because people don't trust them. So you will need to have these central forces for a longer period to ensure that things come back to normal, but it's it will take some time. It's not easy to bring back normalcy after so much has happened. So many people within the state are displaced, and uh, even people from the valley have moved out of Manipur to some of their relatives elsewhere. I mean, the situation has become so bad. The cookies themselves have left Manipur and moved out to their, you know, to their to their relatives elsewhere in other states. So how long will it take for all that to come back to a semblance of normalcy?
0: Right, that is indeed a very grim uh, picture uh, you are portraying, uh, Ms. Mukim. I mean, uh, I guess that's how uh, the way it is right now. I mean, you did make a, some very important points about the collapse of law and order who is responsible for it, and for things to go back to normal, even though it might happen uh, at a superficial level. These are matters of human emotions and it's going to take a long time for trust and confidence to be built back once again.
1: Can I can I say one thing? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, what surprises most of us is that there have been no peace committees coming forward to even bring the two... Uh, You know, the the two rival communities together to sit at a table to talk things out. Where have the elders disappeared? You would have thought that there are church elders and elders from other uh, spiritual institutions to come forward to even have a peace procession. And if you have elders around, I'm sure that, you know, violence is not going to erupt. But that sane voice is not there to bring people together. People have just been so polarized. So that is the reason why I doubt that normalcy will return anytime soon.
0: Right. I mean, I mean it, it's of course uh, very pertinent to note that uh, there have been no peace committees or initiatives, as you rightly pointed out. But then, if normalcy uh, does not return, how is the state going to have elections uh, in this, later this year? I mean, that's a big question mark also. Uh, we need to probably come back and revisit that in a separate episode of uh, In Focus. Thank you so much, Ms. Mukim, for your time and for sharing your observation and insight into the unfolding crisis in the state of Manipur. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify.